0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the first weekend of November 2022. After a remarkably warm early part of October, things cooled off in the last week or so of the month and have really changed here in the last couple of days in Sitka. The National Weather Service was sending out warnings earlier in this past week saying that the first Arctic outflow event of the winter was going to show up. Seems to me it's a little on the early side. Usually we get them a bit later, certainly expect them in December and January and in February at times, sometimes even into March. But uh, nice to see some sunshine. But this cool north winds, cold north winds, really chilly here, and I'm sure much colder in other parts of the region, definitely marked a change from that earlier wetter, warmer weather. It has been still good for interesting birds showing up. A mountain blue bird showed up at the airport yesterday, earlier in the week. There was a sharp-tailed sandpiper, the first documented one here in Sitka. So you never know what might be around. If you're seeing an unusual bird, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Send me messages uh, in that way. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded this past week with Scotty Gabara. He is a scientist in residence fellow, just finishing up his term at the Sitka Sound Science Center for over the past month he has been here in town. had a chance to speak with him about some of his work on a project looking at glacial runoff, the effect of glacial runoff on marine organisms, as well as his interest in natural history more generally and nature photography in particular. So we'll go ahead and join the conversation with him, sharing a little bit about the uh, nature of the project he's been working on here in Southeast Alaska.
1: So, trying to understand how glacial melt is affecting nearshore marine ecosystems, and um, so we have a series of sensors that we put out to try to estimate salinity and temperature and oxygen, um, also light, and then the water depth because we're in the intertidal, so the tide's going up and down. So we can describe what, how the glacial melt is changing the water quality and then we link that to the community that's there. So we do surveys for invertebrates and algae and we also um, drag these nets, uh, these beach seine nets for fish to try to see how the fish are affected.
0: So you're just kind of doing a census essentially of what's what's there and looking at systems that have glaciers. So it's less about what's changing, more about here's a baseline and, sort of, and yeah, comparison with different watersheds.
1: Yeah. It's like we're, we're trying to use this sort of natural gradient in glacial coverage as like a natural experiment. So there's sites that we chose that have different amounts of glacial coverage in them. So we have a, you know, a 0% glacial coverage watershed. It's The water that's going through that watershed is mainly precipitation and snow and ice melt. And then we have the other extreme of high glacial coverage, you know, 50 to 60 percent. And during those summer months, when the temperatures are higher, we're getting a lot more freshwater melt. So we have this sort of extreme of uh, no glacial coverage and rain and uh, snow-fed system versus this um, high glacial coverage and, you know, a lot of freshwater coming out. So there's are kind of two ends of the, the spectrum.
0: At the risk of jumping almost immediately out of what you're actually <laughs> studying, the question that arises to me is like, is there a way of telling what percentage of water coming out is actual glacier versus snow versus a direct runoff? I mean, I, I guess maybe that there would be some sort of fancy chemical means of doing that, but I don't really know if that's something that people could measure.
1: Well, so we have we have a whole stream team that's sort of dedicated to understanding the streams, and I'm the like literal downstream version of that so i know kind of less about those pieces but i think there are some water quality parameters that you could measure to kind of get that estimate but they know pretty well because they've described these systems and we chose them specifically if this one is pretty much all rain and, and snow melt um versus the the glacial melt but there are things like the sediment that's in the water and the temperature of the water um There's also some isotopes, some oxygen isotopes, so these ratios of heavier to lighter isotopes where you can tell this is glacier ice melting and not precipitation uh, or snow melt.
0: Yeah, I wondered if there would be some sort of uh, physical process that tended to, you know, differentiate old water, essentially, that has been in ice for however many decades, hundreds of years, maybe centuries even. Uh, or even longer, I suppose, in some cases, uh, versus, you know, the water. And I suppose there's also the possibility of groundwater-fed uh, systems as well. And is that something that you've considered, is the ground? Because I know here, Indian River, is like one of the forks of it is is groundwater. It's very buffered temperature-wise.
1: Very good point. Uh, yep. Um, <clears throat> so I haven't thought about this. Right, but yeah. um, that is sort of the next, I think, uh, uh, area of pursuit for the folks that are um understanding this the stream systems is well what about groundwater could it could it mostly be this is having a really strong effect and we had no idea and um it seems like you can use some chemical markers or some dyes and things like that to try to really understand where the water's coming from because you're right you'll see some of these beaches like some sandy beaches where this water's coming out of nowhere on the beach and you're like where's that coming from well it's it's groundwater right <laughs> we, we weren't even thinking about that um so yeah, you're absolutely right. I think there's it's going to get more complex. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you've got to start simple. You start, <laughs> start somewhere. And for the, your part, it sounds like you know the basic idea is like, what are we observing, and, and what are what differences are we noticing in those syst- in these systems? The initial setup of the systems was based on sounds like primarily uh, glacial coverage uh, to to get some variation along that continuum, but. It's hard to not also incorporate other things, incidentally, I suppose.
1: Yeah, there's like the the watershed area. So um, uh, somebody brought up a good point about that um, during my natural history talk where they said, well, it looks like uh, as the watershed gets bigger, those are the areas that support more of the glacial coverage also. So those are kind of confounded and they're linked together. Like, that's a a good point. So there's only so much we can tease apart with um, uh, glacial coverage, uh, the watershed area. Um, and the, the locations that we chose right now, the amount of oceanic input and, like, the circulation. So I think this might, yeah, it, just like you said, it'll kind of give us a preview of what's going on, and then we can probably dial in these different effects by choosing other locations. Um, and there's only so much you can do experimentally. I think, right. Um, yeah. It's kind of the problem with, like, <laughs> how do you how do you um, inundate a whole system with fresh water during the summer months to, like, simulate, you know, fresh water input. Um, from these glaciers melting. And, and I don't... Yeah. <laughs> I some people have, like, diverted streams and stuff like that, which oh, wow. I think is, is pretty neat. Like, you know, on a very small scale, what does this little area look like over time as it gets more fresh water? But, yeah, experimentally, we're pretty limited on what we can do suppose, <laughs> with this particular question.
0: Yeah, I suppose with aquariums, you could, you could do individual species or very small collections of species and say Absolutely. what effects are this kind of freshwater and temperature having versus that, you know, and do, but then that doesn't really incorporate the whole ecosystem, you know, interactions that might be happening.
1: That is like, you just summed up like all of <laughs> experimental ecology, <laughs> you know, there's, you try to mimic the real world in a laboratory setting and there's only so many things you can control and make similar. And, um, but that's a really good point too, is we're finding things like, um, you know, shifts in the community and, Uh, Muscles that don't attach as well and you can go into the lab and say okay is it just fresh water um, that's affecting them and put them into tanks that have salty water to all the way to very fresh and see if they attach in the same way so um, yeah that's a good point there there are certain aspects that you can um, you know you can really target
0: yeah i suppose you know doing the the sort of field study and and that gives you yeah it starts to raise more questions i suppose like any good science does you're like well we got some some my answers here but we got a lot more questions <laughs> yep <laughs> For the next time the
1: unexpected stuff i think that's i was just talking to somebody about that um the other day where there's a bunch of data we have now in like a whole area that i had no idea i, w- I wouldn't have known like glacial melt appears to be weakening muscle attachment strength and their shell strength and i didn't i didn't know that before and you know we know more about like um ocean acidification and how that affects mussels. but we're i think just kind of getting into freshwater input and how that might change their ability to get those building blocks and make their shells um
0: and so i mean i guess around here it's wet all the time i mean we do have a what passes for a dry season which most places in the world would laugh at is saying <laughs> it's dry we only get four or five inches a month instead of you know 10 or 11 and it's um so it's it's wet all the time and we constantly have fresh water coming out and so but in these large especially i suppose in larger watersheds where you have a lot of glacial stuff over the winter time it's accumulating and then over the summer it's so so it's it's creating a sort of a different shape i remember speaking with a naturalist uh richard carsonson who lives in juneau and quite a few years ago probably around the time i first met him and he said oh so your highest stream flows in the springtime right and i was like no why would they be there in the fall of course when it rains the hardest <laughs> And it was he's like oh well here they're in the in uh, in the spring, and I realized oh when you have a large watershed, you know a single weather event isn't probably going to unless it's a massive water event which does happen, but a single weather event of of heavy rain is going to affect part of the watershed. And relatively speaking to the whole volume of of water that's coming down, it's going to have a relatively low impact. Whereas here a single rain event. It's the whole watershed that's, that's full. You, you know, it's getting wow. hit by yeah. that rain all the time. So our rivers here get highest when we have these big rain events, typically in the fall, but sometimes uh, sometimes other times of year into the winter. Uh, whereas in the spring, you know, the snow is melting over the entire large watershed. It's all coming down at once. And here it's not really, that snow melt isn't as much as a heavy rain event would be in terms of a contribution of water. The biggest uh, rivers or when it's a warm event on top of snow you know if we have early fall snow or early or or a, or kind of a midwinter warm-up and and heavy yep. rain um, but that was something that hadn't really occurred to me like the size of the watershed and the amount of water coming down um, or, or the reasons for that water coming down where it's coming from i guess uh, like different times of year, you're going to have different peaks and different expectations. And so that's part of what you're looking at with these uh, systems.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So um, I think in Juneau this last season, we had a lot of precipitation sort of later in the winter and that melted a lot of the snow. And I heard there was a big, you know, salinity, I mean, uh, freshwater pulse that lowered the salinity in, in the near shore. And I was walking around um, Sheep Creek and I noticed a bunch of these dead mussel shells. And it was just like this report i saw on ktoo from last season up in um naku bay by um skagway and um it was Ruben cash who's part of the skagway traditional council as a researcher and he found this big muscle die-off event in the summer um, months when this big freshwater pulse came through and so that's a really good point we're only looking during the summer uh, you know five or six months and if we have these late winter pulses we I think we just missed the one that we had we had in Juneau. So, I mean, that could have completely changed our community. And um, I still haven't looked at the data yet, but um, I think it's a really good point. Kind of thinking about uh, the frequency, so how often these events are occurring, uh, the magnitude, so how low, how fresh is that water, how low is the salinity, and then the duration, like how long does it last? So that like melting snow is kind of trickling and it's consistent versus this really big pulse that's pretty big strength so yeah probably very different effects on the community um, yeah that's, that's a good point
0: it's I, and to be clear i guess we haven't mentioned your your study sites are you working both the Catchmack bay ones and the juno area ones or just the juno area ones i know there was some... i just work in the juno area okay. ones
1: but i, I I've worked in uh, Ketchamak Bay one um, sampling time in the last season, so I, I got a little taste of how cool it is over there. Yeah, so there's <laughs> a handful of
0: sites there, again, w- with that continuum of glacial coverage of the watershed, and then likewise in the Juneau area, kind of the immediate Juneau area?
1: Yep, Yeah, so we have these two regions, and the reason we chose them was that Ketchamak Bay has more oceanic input. The, the circulation is such, you get you know, more salty water. Uh, relative to Juneau that's more inland and has a lot more fresh water a lot more precipitation so that's kind of the two that's the rationale for the two regions and then within those regions we have yeah four or five sites that go to from 0 to about 60% glacial coverage um, so it's kind of i think it's a pretty interesting study design i didn't i didn't choose it i came on later but um, I think we now have this ability to say, okay, on the open coast, how is glacial melt going to affect systems? And you'd imagine with this buffering effect of um, saltwater kind of bathing over everything, you know, with every tidal cycle, uh, might be different than in inland Juneau areas or in in any inland area where there's a lot more precipitation. Um, and so we have that that comparison. And so far, it's it's pretty much what you'd expect. You know, you have this buffering effect of saltwater. um the community isn't as affected um the the kind of clearest patterns we have right now are with our with our muscles and looking at their attachment and their uh, shell strength and um they're more easily pulled from rocks when they're at sites that have a lot of that glacial melt um versus sites that that don't and their shell strength is, the, is in the same direction where they're stronger at sites that don't have any of the glacial melt um, but interestingly, if you go to Ketchamak Bay, all of those mussels tend to have a higher strength to pull them from rocks and a higher shell strength. So we think it's probably something to do with that, that buffering effect of that water. And you can see it in the sensor data also. And it's, it's you know, pretty much
0: what you'd expect. Mm. With, the, with the amount of um, fresh water, salinity, salinity amounts? Yeah. So the, yeah. Um,
1: that, that salt water, that, that, that circulation that's happening in Ketchamak Bay is sort of bathing over all of those sites and so you're getting um kind of this pulse of salty water over everything kind of helping to balance everything out hom- homogenize it relative to juno where everything's fresh pretty much <laughs> all the time and it, it gets even more fresh as you go into those later summer months when we're getting a lot of melt so it's, it's it's pretty interesting to see that that difference and um it has some i think some real life impacts on these these communities
0: that makes wonder a little bit the um you know, I know that fresh water can form a lens that sometimes is pretty thick, deep. I don't know what the right, there's a lot of fresh water on the surface that, and I don't know, like when we say a fresh water lens, if it's like, like I could drink it and it would not taste salty at all. Or if there's a little bit of mixing, I assume that weather, you know, stormy weather would tend to um, turn that up and, and tend to, to reduce the amount of, of that happening or maybe tides and high currents or something. I don't know. Like what, I could imagine a lot of different things could have an impact on that. And it, yep. but, um, yep. but that, you know, especially for intertidal creatures where if, if there's a persistent freshwater lens, they could be in freshwater the whole time if it's thick enough and just like not being able to get out of it at all.
1: Absolutely. Yep. I think once that freshwater comes into the marine environment, I think it's pretty well stratified and... Um, I think we we saw that in Katchamak Bay, um the wazensinski River comes out into Kachamak, and you 'll see this real silty brown water that 's coming out from the river and If you stick a Gopro under the water you 'll see it 's in the you know first few feet or you know whatever meter <laughs> um, but from what i 've heard from our oceanographer is he 's put out these drifters to look at circulation and then um these c t d the connectivity temperature depth sensors where you can just like you said, look at the depth of that freshwater lens, and if I'm remembering right, it was like 60 meters of some freshwater effect in Ketchumic Bay. So I think during, you know, those kind of later summer periods when you get a lot of melt going on, even though this region has more oceanic input, I think we're getting a, a really big pulse of freshwater. Um, I, I don't know what the resonance time of that is. If it's just getting exported out, but apparently there's it's pretty thick and it, it has consequences for like the circulation that's going on there so it's it seems like this this fresh water that's melting during a certain time of the year it's it's it might be pretty important for how everything's connected at least in you know in Ketchum Bay and I, th- I think we know a little bit less about in Juneau. Um but yeah it seems like this fresh water can be really massive it's it's pretty impressive
0: yeah it makes me well and then the timing because our storms we don't tend some of the calmer weather tends to be in the summer around here right so there's less of that kind of mixing as you get later into the summer the tide and uh, and towards the the fall equinox the tides become less extreme for a little while you know relatively speaking i don't know if that's enough to make a difference or not but like all of these factors then might contribute it seems like potentially to to how persistent that that fresh water might be as opposed to say you know a big rain event in the winter time where yeah. you know that those rain events might be a massive input of fresh water but it's associated with really stormy seas and lots of you know maybe more mixing yeah Yeah. but i don't know
1: i i'm not i don't think i can speak to the specifics about that but that's that's a good point i'd imagine it would affect the stratification and and um yeah for these intertidal organisms you know (laughs) just like you said if there's that's pretty stagnant and not mixing you're they might be in that fresh water for a a while until it kind of dissipates and, and mixes so yeah, I think that's kind of the next step is getting into more of the kind of temporal, the, the, t- the changes that happen with time and um, what that thickness of that fresh water looks like. Um, yeah, so you'd imagine if you're in the intertidal and you're an organism that's uh, maybe a lot deeper than the upper intertidal one, that deeper one's going to be in saltier water versus the one that's really high up and is experiencing that less dense fresh water at the you know the upper end. So. Even looking at kind of that, you know, the, along a depth contour um, or perpendicular to the depth contour, um, yeah.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned that the the mussels is the thing that you've noticed the most distinctive signal, I guess, correlation between these these systems with more freshwater input versus versus other. And you know, as I think about my experience with mussels, it's not like I don't see them near rivers uh, here. I mean, they they're, I guess I. As I'm thinking about it, like in the very, you know, sort of most closer to freshwater brackish part, maybe I, I guess I don't see them. Like I'm thinking about Totem Park down here and, and there's okay. like massive mussel beds in the on the flats out, actually, you know, out from the river mouth. You know, I I, I don't know quite how they work, but they seem to actually build things up a little bit. And I think it's probably because they're pulling on all the gravel and kind of binding it oh, right. in yep. a way. Uh, and sometimes you can see places, where I think some of the wintering sea ducks will go and they'll dive for them. And, and so like there's places where, it'll be a muscle bed, but there'll be like gaps and holes. And I, I'm guessing that might be from the ducks, like oh, nice. pulling ducks, yeah. but I don't, I don't know. So like scoters and, and some other, other, uh, marine, I mean, sea ducks basically. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure, but that's kind of a, a hypothesis I have about it, but that I would imagine, I mean, that's, that's in, in uh, very close to that, that river coming out, you know, it's in a relatively protected for our, our part of the world, uh, Bay here. Um, and so, I mean, it seems clear that they can survive brackish ish water, you know, somewhat fresh, but it, you know, they're not as strong. I guess the other side is that they're not subject to as much wave action and those sorts of things because they're in that protected. So maybe they don't need to be as strong and can still survive. I don't know, but
1: yeah, here, I'm, I mean, I'm 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 not sure about here, but at least in in Juneau, um areas like at Eagle Beach, you can drive up and go down the parking lot and look at the rocky habitat there at Eagle Beach and um, there'll be mussels and barnacles covering the kind of rocky substrate and there's a little stream that comes out and you can see uh, covering you know rock, uh, barnacles and, and mussels and then as you get to that stream there'll be um, kind of green algae and this fucus this rockweed the seaweed that we see tends to uh, survive in these more freshwater conditions and then as you pass that stream you'll get right back into barnacles and mussels so it seems like the same thing we're seeing within sites uh, we're also seeing across the sites with this larger kind of freshwater input from glaciers so there might be some sort of threshold where here you're you got a lot more oceanic input um, and that might they haven't kind of hit this threshold of freshwater maybe they got the reprieve of that that um, buffering effect that you have of the salt water but yeah i'm not sure there's probably some threshold and where they i mean the hypothesis here is that um they have those bissel threads so they can attach to a a surface and we're thinking that uh, work that's done on low ph is sort of uh, similar to to our work where the mussels ability to to set their natural epoxy is uh, is lowered at low ph so they can't set that epoxy very well and so that leads to them falling off of say lines for mariculture farmers and um so that that seems to parallel what we're observing so far where under um areas with low salinity they don't seem to attach as well and that's from our force gauges and we tend to see more bare rock um more openings of these muscle beds kind of like what you described with those predators but it, we think it's because they don't attach as well and so you have this kind of opening a bare space and so maybe that's why we see more seaweed there it's just all of a sudden there's this habitat that's that's available or these the seaweed's doing better it's actually performing better because of this glacial water the nutrients that are in there this iron and phosphorus that they have we, we're not really sure so yeah. we're, we're kind of like Right on the edge of okay what's going on here way <laughs> we gotta really dive into our data and try to figure out okay we see observe these community shifts but why is it happening um, and then yeah maybe related to places like here in Sitka where maybe you don't have that freshwater kind of level that we do in um, Lynn Canal or some of the sites with more glacial input in, in Ketchmac Bay
0: yeah, I suppose. I mean, that's the thing where you have the amenability to a, a laboratory experiment, I guess, with, with muscles. You can just, yep. like, say, all right, here's some, here's some factors we think might be important, and we'll just have X number of boxes and vary them accordingly and see what happens. Absolutely. That's, what that's,
1: what's, that's what's so cool about this particular thing is you can just have the muscles reattach to different substrates and put them in a tank just like you said with different salinities see what the force is and then you can even mix them up and do the kind of reciprocal thing oh right and see if all of a sudden there's a you know increase or decrease in their attachment and it'll be maybe a very clear signal of oh salinity is the the culprit here the the one mechanism that you know kind of explains what's going on
0: yeah it's it's i don't know i i don't anticipate having all the questions that i come up with ever answered um you know that's sort of the nature of having lots of curiosity and questions but it is it does raise curiosity about okay and it, kind of the more general thing is like why do things live where they live and not where they don't you know what is it about a particular you know is it and that's one like with Inner Title, for example um I was speaking with somebody who lives in Katchmack Bay, lives in Seldovia, and they noticed these little porcelain, flat, flat-top porcelain crabs um, within the last couple of years. And it's, and they've been going to the beach for quite a few years. Oh, wow. Um, and just within the last couple of years, there's a bunch of them now, and they're like all over the place. And so the question then becomes, you know, they would have, you know, they're confident they would have noticed them. You know, that's always the first question. is like, did you just not notice them before? She said, well— we've been going consistently enough and documenting the stuff there she puts lots of observations on iNaturalist and this is Erin McKittrick's her name and um, and so I'm sure we would have seen them if they were common like they are now and then last winter there was this cold snap that happened here you know all across the south coast of Alaska and it happened during a low tide series and so she noticed also a bunch of dead crabs. And so then that just raised a question. It's like, well, maybe that's what might prevent them. Like maybe they do get established from time to time, but then they're susceptible to that sort of a thing. So I could imagine like it's the extreme event that will kill something off, whereas others that are more resistant to it. But most of the time they're fine there. And if they get established, they'll be there until that event comes. Or it could be like the averages that are the problem. It's just not quite warm enough to reproduce. And it's not the extremes that get it. It's just they aren't quite getting seed set for example, with plants. And yeah, turned absolutely. out those crabs were still there this summer, so that, that cold event didn't kill them off. It killed a bunch of them, but it didn't, you know, they were still around. So, um, And it could just be that, you know, some things are just moving, you know, wherever they were post-Ice Age. It just takes some a while to kind of migrate and, and get established in new places.
1: So. Yeah, I think, I mean, with, um, you know, global warming that's occurring, we're seeing a, you know, higher global uh, average temperature and we're seeing these range expansions happen along the coast and that's where I think things like I naturalists come into play where we have this amazing record of who's there now and you know just like you said you can you know a crab from a sea star or from a you know alga like we can tell those kind of broad groups and all of a sudden if this picture pops up and is consistently there it's like oh well maybe they moved up on this warm water event or something from the south and then just like you said that they are able to surviving these conditions and maybe they're a part of the community now and like, yeah we're just observing these kind of changes and i, I think that's i is like a super powerful tool and and just for like the general like who's here like who's yeah. in my community i don't i haven't you know i still don't know much about the the flora and fauna here in alaska and it's just been so nice to go on there and go like let me just get an idea you go to explore and like see who's there it's like and relying on people like you, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that actually know their stuff and uh, are familiar with the area. And um, that's been super helpful because I think we can all make observations and are like noticing the world changing. I think yeah. that's, that's pretty amazing.
0: I've been impressed with the uh, England. They have like this centuries old history of I mean, a uh, tradition of natural history, you know, amateur natural his- historians that so they have like. I think they're they're a square map. They have maps that are uh, basically the entire country divided into, like, kilometer squares, and they have indicators of whether a species has been seen in that for, like, really? mosses. And it's just this, because they <laughs> have this long history of people being really interested in it. And oh, that's great. it's a little more accessible there, to be fair, than it is, you know, Southeast Alaska. Oh, not, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not quite so accessible. But it's kind of one of those things, like, over time, you know, that's where you, you just, as people are interested, and the more people know... Um, the, the more interested, at least my experience is a lot. And and with other people, it's like you start to learn some things and the more you learn, the more you notice. And, and then it just sort of curiosity expands and, and not everybody gets into everything, but people find their things that they get pretty into. And there's,
1: yeah, I was just taking a walk. Um, I guess it was halibut point, I think. And there's this dipper bird. I don't don't know much about it. American dipper. Yeah. American dipper. So, um, my partner and I have been looking for one all over the place. And, uh, I finally saw one on this walk and I just, it was, I was so stoked. Was like, Oh my gosh, it's bobbing up and down. You'll see it go into the stream and I guess it's picking at little invertebrates that are, you know, in the stream water. And it was just so cool to see it live and in person. Like, I'm like, yeah, I was, I was just shocked. Like it's finally here. I got, it. I got <laughs> it. I saw the dipper and now I kind of understand, you know, I could, there could be a whole, uh, me getting into birding and just yeah. really appreciating who's there and, um, you know, understanding, Bird differences, and
0: yeah, birds have that kind of. uh, They're a little bit like playing playing the um, playing the slot machines, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) In some ways, because you because they move around, it's like you can be surprised by a plant also, and find one that you didn't know was there before that you never seen before. But um, birds kind of are there. You know, they're not so diverse as insects, so you don't feel like hopelessly lost. (laughs) And they do move around, so you know there's Some the regular ones. There. Yeah. yeah, there's the regular ones that you can get to know and and, and even get to know as individuals. You know, like the song sparrow in your yard or the dipper at that particular reach, or, or you know if you spend time there, you can get to know them as individuals. And they'll get to know you as well. Um, but then there's the birds that just show up because they got lost, and here they are. And so then it's it's a little like you just never know what you're going to see. There's always a chance of finding one of those unusual birds and. We humans, many of us, like novelty. So, oh yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit. It's a little bit uh, can be a little bit addictive for some people, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I most I, I restrain myself, constrain myself to to sit here. But within the last couple of weeks, that we had um, at least four different people that came to town because of birds that had showed up here that they wanted to be able to s- say they'd seen Alaska, add to their state list, you know. So, oh wow, um, so there are folks that are a little more. Um, Geographically broad in their in their pursuits. Uh, of yeah, I birds. can see they're getting addicting. And we're like, okay, I got to go yeah. see this one. I got to yeah. travel this
1: place. And I mean, I do that. I'll probably do that with seaweed at this point, where <laughs> I'm trying to dive at certain places to see, you know, bull kelp again, and you know, in these more wave exposed areas. Or um, there's this deep water, uh, deeper kelp called pelagophicus. It's a elk kelp, mm. and it kind of looks like the bull kelp, the you know, the big nematocyst, the floaty part. And um, but it has these kind of bifurcations that look like horns that come off it and um they uh they grow up in deeper habitats and they come up and they're sort of suspended in the water you know and, and they don't go all the way to the surface and it's just sort of surreal like these you know kelpie angels it's <laughs> it's pretty neat i've I've only seen them a couple times but, do
0: they grow around here
1: uh no i think they're, they're more southern oh, okay more southern yeah um yeah like uh I'm to say, I'm not even sure how far north they go from uh, ca- Southern California, north of uh, the bite. Um, so they're probably, probably just that area, but uh, that makes me miss bull kelp if I'm down there. Yeah. Where, <laughs> um, oh, because
0: you don't, you don't see the, the naryocystis, the no, bull kelp down there? you don't
1: get a ton of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they like more wave exposed habitats and um, yeah, kind of more open water and. Um, currenty areas and so yeah there's some places in juneau that'll have it i think on those those islands where you're getting a lot of current and they love that like wave motion and um it sounds like that's even what we're finding when you we're trying to grow them up for you know mariculture use because we love our kelp pickles and yeah (laughs) um it's pretty tasty one um but they they really need this water motion it seems like to to survive They like evolved in this wave exposed habitat they're called cumophytes so it seems like even at a small stage you like need to have this flow Um, so it's kind of wild we have to like you know people put them into like a circulating flume tank uh, that circulates water really quickly and all of a sudden they're growing well like, oh, shoot! I guess we have to grow these and you know pump some water through you know it's pretty wild,
0: Well it gets back to that question like what is it about them that requires that? Is it some sort of stimulation that that creates you know stimulates the hormones to to grow or and uh, you know how that all works is kind of fascinating, like you think well, some things you know they they are able to tolerate it so they outperform other things there, but you don't think of them as requiring it because it seems like it's terrible conditions, you know. Yeah, it's just but, they happen to do better, but sometimes it seems like no, no, actually, they need those terrible conditions.
1: Yeah, and I mean, who knows? Just like you said, there's it could have been previous competition with other seaweeds and um, that they evolved to just grow in wave exposed areas. Like these are the only areas you're going to make it in. You're going to get um, there's going to be some competitive dominant in the areas where you have slow water, so. You're going to evolve to not even try. It's not going to be worth it for you. But who knows? Maybe at this point um, they need it to—I don't know—shed some boundary layer and actually uptake nutrients better or something. You know, mm. Something on a small scale. Yeah, we'll, we'll find that out probably yeah. eventually. Well, I suppose when <laughs> you want to
0: when you want to understand how to grow something like that, you start to really dig into the into the the nuts and bolts of its physiology. And
1: yeah, that's what's so cool about the kind of applied science that's going on with mariculture. I think you know you can you can be a phycologist and learn about you know, the nuts and bolts of seaweed and how they grow and alternate alternation of generations of it.
0: Cause they're complicated.
1: It seems like it. <laughs> well, some of them,
0: at least I was reading, the, I'm like, okay, I'm lost a life cycle, of like X number of stages. And then they got weird things going on at the different stages and, and, yeah, and this, like dormant. complex terminology, uh, makes it a little hard to follow for the, for the person who hasn't looked into it too much.
1: Well, yeah, the seed bank seems to be like a good analogy, um, my PhD advisor, uh, Matt Edwards, uh, had this ecology paper early on where he talked about this idea of a seed bank for um, uh, for seaweeds. And I think that's a pretty good analogy where it looks like they can have this dormant um, gametophyte stage where... You can have these rocks in shallow areas and you'll have uh, kelps that are releasing their spores and you know it's on these rocks and you can bring them down really deep water where there isn't enough light to kind of trigger them to grow. And then you can take it out, and, you know, you have a marker out there in the environment and you like go find that boulder years later and bring it up shallow in the lab and all of a sudden it's it just takes off. And so people have kind of done this where they're like, I want to see if there's anything on that rock that... You know, I was in that kelp forest a long time ago, and and just kind of put it in deeper water and suspended animation. And it looks like they have these dormant stages, which is probably a good thing to have when you live in an environment that's, you know, variable and you might not have the best conditions, and maybe you don't make it this season, but next season all of a sudden there's a lot more light or something. So, um, I think yeah, we can understand this like seed bank analogy can can help species later on and.
0: Um, yeah i mean i guess it makes sense if you if you are strictly tied to a your seeds have to grow the next year or they don't make it then you're susceptible to a catastrophic event that eliminates you basically yep. and in the geologic span of time you know for species lifetimes as opposed to individual lifetimes it's almost inevitable that something like that will happen sometime yeah that's a good like. point
1: yeah it seems like there's some theories where um some seaweeds have just moved deeper and deeper like some of the kelps as you go along the equator it's just too warm in the shallow water there's not enough uh i think it's i think it's mostly the temperature but maybe there's not enough nutrients either so they've gone deep is kind of what we hypothesized and so there's certain places where um we've actually found um seaweeds these uh i think it's i don't think it's a Clonia galopagensis. i think it might be but anyway, it's a, it's a kelp, uh, it has a stipe and blades and found it really deep and you, know, you send like a camera down and like, Oh, oh my gosh, there's, there's seaweed down here <laughs> and it's really deep, but you can, you know, get, wa- um, with that clear water, you can get light penetrating a lot further mm. at the equator than you can, you know, where we are. <laughs> oh. So it seems like they maybe kind of got really deep and then they made it across the equator to kind of work their way around the, the southern part of the world um so yeah that's interesting when you think about like longer time scales like there's uh everything probably relates to each other the seed bank was probably important and it had them helps them you know deal with environmental variation and maybe even helped them kind of get down south and um be cosmopolitan all around the world at this point
0: yeah i guess that's one thing that it's easy to forget about is that the equator is kind of a like there's similarish climates north and south but you got a big big stretch of of uh warm uh to to get through and that is you know the conditions within that are much much less hospitable for i mean obviously there's lots of stuff that lives in warm water too but um not typically stuff that also lives in cold water it seems like yeah
1: that's a good point yeah i think maybe maybe that's pretty different i guess i never thought about Terrestrial species very much, um, but yeah, for these temperate sort of um, kelps that are living in colder water, it seems like that's the only way to go—is just escape and go deeper. And um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, yeah. life, life will find a way. It's like Jurassic yeah. Park. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, and so you spend a lot of time uh, diving. You get to do a lot of diving. I don't know if you're doing that as part of this inner this uh, work that we were talking about early on, but it you know it, it seems. Uh, from the projects that you've worked on you have a lot of ch- chance to spend a lot of time underwater.
1: Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy diving. I haven't done a ton of it in Juno, but um there are some really neat spots to dive and see wrecks and there's uh big sunflower stars down there and some really neat critters, but it's not um kind of the the full kelp forest that <laughs> yeah. that we that at least I really enjoy and um I got to dive at Magic Island here a couple weeks ago and to see giant kelp again, it was just it was great. It was like seeing an old friend, you know, there's these little, um, tube snout, these elongate fish that are swimming around and these little kelp perch. And, um, there's even some sea, um, eelgrass there. And it was, it was nice to see, uh, kind of a full community. <laughs>
0: um, so it's a little less, I mean, I guess the macrocystis doesn't grow on the inside. Do you have the, the dragon kelp, the Eularia, or We'll see, or
1: you'll see, um, some wash up on the beach here and there. Um, and the same thing with bull kelp, but I think, they're probably a little bit further out on some of those mm. islands, maybe on the points. Um, there must be some dragon kelp around, but I, I haven't seen any in the, in person. <laughs> N- not so much there, right, around Juno. Know? Yeah, and it's probably that sedimentation from oh, the right. glaciers and um, the water tends to be um, pretty turbid too. Uh, I think there's some competition with phytoplankton too. It can really take over and uh, cloud up the water in the you know first twenty thirty feet. Uh, it's pretty amazing. But then all of a sudden it'll open up underneath you and you can actually see stuff. Mm. She saw like a halibut off in the distance. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's <laughs> there's stuff down here. This is amazing.
0: Uh, yeah. It seems like there's a lot, I mean, it's a whole different world, uh, you know, in three dimensions underwater. It, well, I mean, it's three dimensions above water too, but, uh, you know, we, we are a little more stuck to, to the surface in Absolutely. some ways. Yeah. That's what's uh, so surreal. I mean, I started
1: diving in like 2006 and, um, I think just like you said be, being able to kind of fly through a kelp forest is just it's very surreal and it's um it's one of the most like spiritual experiences I've ever had. You're like um seeing those like sun fractals come through the the kelp blades at the surface and be just sort of floating around and you're looking around there's rockfish swimming around you and um it's pretty magical. Yeah, it'd be I mean, I'm sure it'd be the same if you're um, studying trees and you're in the forest and you're rappelling down or something, it would be yeah. also pretty amazing.
0: A little, little less, a little more free to move, I suppose, when you're, when you're diving. It's <laughs> true. And, uh, <laughs> you can
1: do kind of a slow airplane around. It's, yeah. it's pretty fun.
0: Well, I remember talking to, I met somebody here uh, who was from Anchorage, actually, he was a birder and he was in town to do a presentation or something. and And I went birding with him and He liked to go to Hawaii every winter for a month or, I don't know, for however long. And he said, you know, one of the things he liked doing there was snorkeling. And he realized that, uh, you know, with snorkeling, he started keeping a fish list, basically. It's kind of like he does a bird list because it's it's not really that different, you know. You go to different places and you can find different fish. And so there's kind of, uh, you know, obviously not as many people dive as don't dive. Um, but for people that snorkel and dive, I, well, I'm just kind of curious. You, you mentioned that there was things that you, you want to see, like places that you want to go, particularly species that you might, you know, make a special trip for kind of thing like you've heard about. And, and uh, yeah, I don't know how prevalent that is among sort of divers in, in general. Is that something that people like to do?
1: Yeah, I think for underwater photographers, that's a huge thing. Like you're just you're going on vacation to take photos of stuff, which which is kind of nice because you like have this memory. That's the cool thing about photography in general just you, you capture this moment and you kind of always have it and um i really appreciate that because you can share it with people so it- i think it's kind of this at least for me it's like this desire to like get the photos and like you have it and you're like yeah i got a picture of that sunflower star in the kelp bed and it looks pretty neat and got sun rays in the background like i, I got that one okay now i got to get this uh sheephead big sheephead fish big male that has these like black and red colors and um yeah it's kind of I think I'll probably end up designing, you know, future trips to just go take photos. And I think if I went to the tropics, it would just be game over because I only – most of my diving has been, you know, colds And now, you know, I'm using dry suits and um, I can't imagine the freedom of just sort of putting a tank on and having your, you know, board shorts and you just kind (laughs) of go out and (laughs) take pictures. I think it would – Um, I think it would skew me a little bit towards (laughs) pursuing tropical diving more.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, you mentioned the excitement of getting photos, and I, as somebody who compulsively carries a camera around because it's been too many times I didn't have it and I wanted it, (laughs) so it's like, now I always have it. The other uh, sort of, uh, I guess, failure mode there is like, you can always get a better picture, so you just tend to, I I guess, I imagine that you, you get that experience as well. It's like, oh, well, I got that picture and that's awesome, but... I could probably get a better one.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, you always push your luck and like try to go closer to the fish you're taking a picture of. Or I'm sure it's the same way with birds. Or like you want to get a little bit closer, a certain composition. And um, yeah, you lose it at some point. And that's also kind of nice, that uh, kind of ephemeral nature of a moment. And sometimes you miss it, and you're like, "Darn, well, better luck next time." And that's why you got to get out there and go again. And um, I did not. The time I did dive at Magic Island, it was not sunny out, so that's that's what i want to try to do before i you know leave in the
0: next you know week so if folks were interested in seeing some of your photos is there a place that they can go to go to see those
1: um i've got some of my photos on my website um it's just uh scott at weebly.com yeah that's that's where i have a good selection of my photos I, I gotta probably update that and then there's like a tab with some of my published work that i've uh, put into magazines and things like that and yeah it's just it's a great hobby i really like it and i want to share it with people so
0: yeah yeah i know that the photography is especially with digital photography i don't know i would not have been so excited about it with film probably just because there's a lot more fussing involved but uh, i like doing stuff on the computer so that has never been an issue for me oh yeah uh, i was just and, saying
1: i did this little underwater photography workshop and i learned on film camera uh, you know d- Uh, taking your film to Costco and having it developed and, you know, I'd make notes of like the F stop and the shutter speed of that. I took each shot and you would get the film developed and a week later, I'd get it back and I'd learn what I did right or wrong. And now it's like instantaneously you can know whether you have a good shot and that's great. I mean, yeah, you'll know to take a better one for one thing, I guess if it's bad and then you've learned something like you can change those things and manipulate stuff and have this instant understanding of what, what, the effect was and i think that's that's just great i think that yeah. advanced everybody's photography understanding and
0: shortens um, that feedback loop uh, significantly and oh, yeah, yeah yeah allows you to adjust and i um yeah i don't it's funny people say well did you get did you see me carrying my camera on to get some good pictures <laughs> and i'm like i hope so because you know you can see a little bit in the in the camera screen you know but but in the end it's kind of like there's nothing quite looking at them that's true and then and then depending on the person like i like to print some of them too i'm not i'm not like nice. a, a purist where it's you know, it's not, if it's not a print, it doesn't count kind of thing. But, um, but it is, it's been something that I've enjoyed certainly. And for me at least like natural history and photography, they've been intertwined the whole time. Like I started in high school, you know, especially at go out hiking with friends and it was just going hiking and I was back at home for the summers when I was going to college and I go hiking. And at some point I wanted to take pictures of flowers and I didn't really understand at the time what that would, do to me it sort of triggered my compulsiveness well okay so i took pictures of flowers and now then i started a website when i was in it was part of the way that i felt connected to home was i post my pictures from the summer on this website so i was like reviewing my pictures and you know writing about them and stuff and i was like well i wonder what that flower is called absolutely so then i'm like okay now i need to know the names and then now like gotta know the names gotta see all of them you know gotta you know gotta do all these things and so from the beginning like it was i'd like to get out but but then taking the pictures and then how many times i looked at pictures later and saw stuff in the photo that i didn't know at the time notice oh, wow. the time yeah. i imagine that happens underwater you're like really oh, focused absolutely. on the fish and then in the background there's this really unusual thing they're like oh if only i had noticed at the time you know oh yeah
1: and the resolution you have now you can zoom into things and go like wow i can see a bunch of different stuff yeah. here that i had no idea was here
0: yeah um, it's it 's taught me to pay more attention at the time because sometimes a lot of times those pictures that are incidental aren 't really what you 'd hope for if you, like you were intending to take a picture of that thing yep. that was unusual and neat um, and so so that's you know there 's been this this feedback loop for me with photography and natural history all the way along you know it sounds like we
1: had this convergent sort of thing where right? <laughs> i i mean i I was taking photos before two thousand and six when I started diving, but I had a camera on my very first dive and just like you said, it was a way for me to like document what was there and actually learn, you know, what is, what is this thing? And when you don't know anything, it's kind of like, okay, there's going to be 300 photos and you don't know what anything is yet. <laughs> um, but that sort of a documentation tool and uh, a tool to kind of understand who's there. I think it's, it's great. It's great that we all have this thing now and especially with things like iNaturalist, like it, I, I understand more about like there's this black box of like, trees right. <laughs> or birds or insects and it's like i understand it now because people are like oh that's a seaweed and I'm like well kelps are kind of different than seaweed they're like brown seaweeds they're like you know usually they're like larger and they're in a certain family and it's it's that but with other areas like, right and that's why i appreciate what you've done where you're like you've it seems like you've gotten higher resolution in pretty much every area you can and i i think uh, a better understanding of natural history overall i think is important and it's gotten me to realize, like, okay, you can't just keep being like, that's a tree. That's a tree. That's a bird. <laughs> well,
0: around here, there's only so many trees. So that's there's, there's <laughs> Start, you know, you, you've got a handful. One a few. Yeah, <laughs> ten, 10 maybe trees uh, in southeast Alaska. So um, it's, it's a little easier than, like, you go to the eastern hardwoods or the Amazon, you know. Okay, that's a whole different matter. But around here, that's one of the things that I appreciate around here is, like, the diversity is such that you can imagine that you could figure out most of it, like over time. It's good. Other places is fathom. Like, it's yeah, fathomable. It's yeah. Yeah. It's just like, well, all right. So you know, I um I am trying to learn what I can. You know, it's helpful to have people that are have expertise in a particular group because um yeah, this is just hard. Beetles are hard, you know, and there's a lot of them. Uh, and so, it, you know, insects it more generally are, are challenging. But then as you learn about stuff and you learn how to look for things, you know, where things tend to be, like that's, that's half the battle sometimes is knowing that something is there and then learning how to find it. And I imagine, you know, that just comes with experience. I'm, uh, you know, I have, I've only gone snorkeling a couple of times and it's something I'd like to do a little bit more, but even poking around in the intertidal, you know, it's just such a rich oh, yeah. community. And different beaches have different things, and different, you know, microhabitats within the beach have different things. And and it's, you know, just a slow process of getting to know it. And, um, oh, totally. But one of the things that was I didn't really expect um, but have appreciated about having this photographic record is looking back at my photos from before and remembering what i thought at the time or or didn't know at the time you know that like i'll look at it now and i'll go oh yeah i know exactly what that is but remembering at the time i was like i have no idea what this is (laughs) you know and sometimes because i put it on my website you know the very first uh picture of a bird that i have was from 1998 it was a dark-eyed junco which is one of our most common birds here and i have a i have a picture of it and i was just it was on film actually that that i took that picture and I, I, so I'd scan the photo and my caption on it on my website was, I don't know what this bird is, but it looks like it's gathering nesting materials. And that was it. But now I know like that was a bird I had to have seen bunches and bunches of times when I was a kid because they're really common in the wintertime, especially they, they flock up and, and move around town in the winter and then they disperse. They're common in the summer as well, but they, you know, tend to be in pairs on nesting territories and stuff, but I had no idea. That's cool. It's like so, an
1: early, it was an early iNaturalist. Right, yeah. <laughs> with one user,
0: well, a few users. <laughs> my, yeah, posting it on my website. And, and then, so having that memory, and, and it reminds me, it's like you're saying, well, now I, I understand because, you know, when I, because you know the kelps well, but, but you know, when people approach you and you're like, no, but actually there's, and it's not like they're subtle either, like your red algae and your green algae and your brown algae, like they're different. Um, in substantial ways but you know for a lot of people that's just a big lump while it's plant-ish and it grows in the sea it's a seaweed.
1: Oh uh, yeah, yeah I understand it now because yeah, I mean so. I do the same thing where I'm looking through these iNaturalist uh, records and I'm like I can't tell the distinguishing pe- feature between these two species but it, I think that's I guess that's one of the cool things about this power of our collective ability is mm. like, just like you said this kind of partitioning of you're an expert in this, you're an expert in this and we have this venue to kind of all work together and that's what's, that's so awesome to me. Like, okay, we can be pretty confident
0: about these things and like,
1: okay, now I can use this as a tool to learn everything and, and be pretty sure I'm not, you know, messing this up.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I've been so locally, I mean, intentionally, I I decided I'm going to try and do everything here, but only here. And if the further I get from here, the less I'm concerned or interested. I mean, it's just cause you got to have some boundaries. <laughs> oh, <totally. laughs> Otherwise there's too much. <laughs> and so that's how I chose mine was to be location based and, and you know, go with anything that's alive here, uh, kind of, or even living or dead, you know, it doesn't, physical environment also, (laughs) I'm interested in rocks, those sorts of things. But one of my sort of abiding faiths is that things are usually recognizable. Like, there are things that are cryptic species or whatever that in the end, but most things are recognizable. Once you know what it is getting to know what yeah. it is in the first place, not so easy, but, and so then I like to have like with common things like the trees around, we can look up in the hillside and I'm like, okay, can I tell what kind of trees those are from, from this distance by subtleties of color or texture and, and for the trees around here I mostly can cuz you know we only have like there's hemlocks spruces and cedars pretty much in the forest up there on the hillside okay. so manageable That's so <laughs> it's it's like it's one of those three and cedars have a more yellow green color and and uh, spruces tend to have a different texture than the hemlocks and a slightly different color and so so there's a little bit of that that I it's just a game you know to play like how many different ways can I tell these things apart but for me I like I I don't identify my children. Like I, I know what they look like. I know who they are. Like they're my children (laughs) or, uh, you know, my friends and family. I, I know who they are. I don't have to go through a key and stuff. So that's kind of the approach that I, that's what I aim for is the ability to just like, I know what that is. And then I like, ideally I can pick out what it is that I'm seeing different, but, but I'm, I'm trying to leverage that sort of recognition system, I guess, whatever that is in our minds that allows us to do that. Um, so, so, uh, and that's a little different approach than a lot of people take. But I, I don't want to try and learn all the lingo <laughs> for every different field, you know, to be able to key through things. And and I value the importance of that. But that's why it's helpful to have people that are um, specialists. Uh, yeah. Is to to work with seaweeds. Some of them are difficult. Some of those red algae are. Oh yeah, I don't Very even, difficult. I don't <laughs>
1: even know. If, I don't think I, can. I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of reds. I I don't know. I'd probably group them all together into like morphological groups of like you know big blades or branchy or yeah you know they're there are kind of morphological characteristics you can just choose and hope that they're kind of serving a similar role when that's yeah it's probably a little coarse but yeah
0: i i like to think that they also are ultimately recognizable but yeah part of it's just like spending the time with them you know i spend a lot of time with my family and my children and, and yep. friends and so it's you know that's and we're also very well wired for for human yeah <laughs> <you> yeah know, <laughs> human facial recognition most <laughs> of us so so there is that as well, but um, but yeah, it's a lot of things. You know, mosses are another small one, but they oh they mostly look different. Okay, uh, <laughs> I don't know what they all are, but I say these things look different, and and you know, so that's where I kind of start. All right, so these look different; they must be something. And then it's kind of this back and forth. Like the the thing that seems to work best for me is to work with somebody who is more attuned to the kind of the technical key characteristics. And then I'm like, okay, here's what this is, and they kind of key it through and 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 say, well. Looks like it keys out to this, and then I like I pull up all the pictures I can find of it. And It's like, well, does it look like that? And so I'm looking at it kind of that way, you know, does it look like that? It kind of, and sometimes things are just really variable, and that's yep. that's what it is. But uh, yeah, that's, a that's a good point. A lot, lot of times, a lot of times. Like if they look different, they probably are different, and it, it, keys are difficult too. So. Oh yeah,
1: that's it's, why they're having this picture. Just like you said, you can just go okay, hold it up next to it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and but then yes. it's yeah, then there's it that training yeah that training because it is it is funny. Like, well, is this a bumblebee or is it a fly? I mean, those are very different groups of insects, but uh, but they have similarities sometimes, and and uh, it can be a little little tricky, but uh, it's fun. You know, I enjoy it, and and uh, seems like. More and more people, you know, especially with iNaturalist, and the thing is it gets so frustrating if you don't have any ability to make any kind of progress. And oh, so yeah. when you have yeah. the ability to make some progress with help from other people in this network through iNaturalist and, and just the Internet in general, it um, feels yeah. like a lot more tractable. Like yeah, I, I less think, daunting. Yeah, yeah <laughs> 40 years ago I'm understand. not sure I would have fallen into the same way just because it would have been like I just wouldn't have had any of the resources that are so easy to get now. Uh, so I really appreciate that. I'm not enough of a self-starter to like figure it all out myself like those old school naturalists. <laughs> you're like, well, nobody's described it. So I guess it's up to me. Uh, and, yep. and there they went. So <laughs> uh, but uh, so you are, um, let's see, this is probably going to be airing on the the 7th of November. And I think that's right around the time you're leaving. But if people want to keep up with what you've been doing, um, your website, which you mentioned, I'll be happy to post that on my, when I post this on my website.
1: Oh, great. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um should probably double check. But it's um it's a Weebly website.
0: All right. Um dot com. Yep. And um yeah, and then the uh, this project that's ongoing, are you part of it through the ne- for the next
1: year or two? Um there'll definitely be some papers coming yeah. out uh, near future to probably pretty far into the future. Right. So I'll be involved in some way, shape or form, probably for a while.
0: <laughs> All right. Well I'll look forward to seeing some of the results of um, of what comes out of that, it seems like it's a big project and, and um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what further studies that also spawns as well as what you, what you are able to conclude from the studies as they are.
1: Yeah. And I've already gotten a lot of um, good comments and input. And are you thinking about, you know, not the summertime, are you thinking about wintertime in these, these uh, precipitation events? So it's, it's been great to just get some input and kind of where to direct and direct the future work. So it's been so great to hear from people. just
0: different perspectives. Yeah, it's helped yeah. a lot. Nice. Well, anything else you want to mention here before we wrap up?
1: No, no. I appreciate your time. And uh, I've loved it here in Sitka. And
0: um, yeah, it's going to be really hard to leave. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm uh, glad you could, could visit. And yeah, let me know if you come back to town again. Be happy to talk more and find out what you've learned and, and what else has been going on.
1: Great. Well, yeah, I'll probably see you on iNaturalist. You're always uh,
0: <laughs> helping me. <laughs> That's true. Things, so. That's true. <laughs> I am on iNaturalist a lot. Well, thanks. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past week with Scotty Gabara, visiting scientist-in-residence fellow at the Sitka Sound Science Center. I want to thank him for taking some time out of his trip to Sitka to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW, Sitka.